Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grab McCauley. Hello and welcome to another edition of From the Diamond. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios, Sports Radio 929 the game. I'm beside as always. My double play partner for these baseball activities, these many, many baseball media ventures we have, Corey McCartney, is in the house once again. Corey, it is a fun day if you're the Atlanta Braves because they have wrapped up a series victory over the Miami Marlins, which means a winning road trip, or, or excuse me, a winning homestand to send them out on a big road trip that's going to follow. But overall, I would call this a pretty good Sunday for the Braves and a much needed win to take that momentum out there on the road. Yeah, and on top of that, it sort of feels like Christmas at Almost June, you got yeah. Michael Harris too mm-hmm. joining up with the team. Spencer Strider scheduled to get a start on Monday, so uh, some you know some nice gifts there for Braves country. Obviously, coming along with that winning homestand. Yeah, and not only that, but we've got so much to get into here on the show. Those are just a couple of the things. The tip of the iceberg, as it were, tip of the sword, maybe in the Braves lineup, as the case of Michael Harris is concerned. We'll see what he's able to bring to the club. But before we jump into all of that and into this week in Braves baseball, I want to remind you. You can follow me on Twitter at Grant McCauley. You can find Corey on Twitter at Corey J. McCartney. Make sure you follow the show at From the Diamond underscore. And make sure you're following the station right here at 92.9 The Game is where you can find that. And if you like From the Diamond, well, make sure you subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast. That's where you can find it. So let's lead things off with that aforementioned homestand that wrapped up on a good note for the Braves. A 6-3 victory behind Max Fried and a little bit of a power display from Marcelo Zuna. Austin Riley got into the act as well. Corey, I think just a nice all-around win for the Braves who really needed to take this series. I mean, splitting with the Phillies, given Aaron Nola's performance in the finale, I I kind of understand it. I can kind of look past it. The Phillies are in the same boat the Braves are. They're searching for consistency. You didn't want to allow the Marlins to sneak out another series win in Atlanta, though. That's something that's already happened this year. You can't keep allowing that to happen. Absolutely not. And we've talked before about how crucial this stretch is with this, you know, 29 games against teams that are, you know, that are sub 500. Yeah. And that's obviously going to continue on this road trip against the uh, the Diamondbacks first time out. But, you know, Braves had 11 hits uh, on Sunday afternoon. Nine went for extra bases. Matt Olson just continues to produce doubles at an absolute insane rate. He's uh, on pace to break the franchise record single season yeah. uh, for uh, Hugh Duffy way, way, way back in the day. So uh, Austin Riley homers, Max Freed, you know, got uh, a really strong performance out of him. And, you know, I've talked about this before, that the, this weirdness with him. When you go back to the start of 2020, he somehow has a higher uh, ERA against losing teams than he does against winning teams. But uh, he was exceptionally strong today. He got Strikeout number 500 in his career against former teammate Jorge Soler. So a big day altogether for Max Fried, and uh, I think exactly what this Braves offense needed as they hit the road against him. We'll, we'll discuss much, much later in the show, but uh, a really good Diamondbacks pitching staff. So it, just a, a nice offensive showcase for this team Sunday. Yeah, it's certainly a surprising start for the Arizona Diamondbacks and even the Colorado Rockies to a certain extent, though both teams have kind of come back down to earth. They've dropped below 500 and what figures to be a very competitive 
National League West as the Dodgers have really caught fire. The Padres are doing their best to keep up. You know, there's a lot of things happening out there, and the Braves are going to have to see a couple of teams that, as you mentioned, do have some pitching in the case of the Diamondbacks and probably know how to score a few runs if you know anything about Coors Field, and we've certainly seen that <laughs> over the years. And most pitching staffs, as they get ready to go into there, they kind of uh, they, they know that something could be lurking inside, that four, um, inside those four games. But we will get to that a little bit later in the show. You talked about Matt Olson and the insane pace for doubles that he is on. Well, the franchise record is 51, and it was set – Way back before the war, not the First World War, not the Second World War, not Vietnam. I mean, before all of those, but before the Spanish-American War, before 1900. That was when Hugh Duffy set that record in 1894. So you're talking about a franchise record that dates back uh, over a century, a century and a quarter plus that um, somebody has done this kind of thing before. And I don't know that he's going to get to 51 doubles on the year. He's leading the National League and uh, Thompson Baseball with 20 of those on the season. We'd love to see some of those start becoming home runs. And maybe with the weather heating up, and I know that Olsen has been working hard to get out of this a bit of a funk that he's been in for three, four weeks now, maybe we'll see the latter happen because Matt Olsen's not necessarily known as the doubles hitter. He's been a pretty good slugger for a number of years. He has, and you know, certainly when you look at the power potential there, you know, with him hitting into the chop house on the regular, uh, yeah, I'm coming off of a, a you know season in which he hit 39 home runs for the A's. But yeah, this this pace with the doubles is is just insane to, to already have you know 20 through uh, you know 48 games into the season. But um, you know, I find it really interesting not to, to dog on Matt Olson at all, but you know the fact that you know the defensive metrics aren't what we saw out of him in Oakland, and the same things happening yeah. with Matt Chapman. You know, in Toronto, and you think yeah. about how those two, you know, when you looked at the guys who were really the standards at first and third, you know, those hot, who those corners who were the the best combination in baseball. I mean, more often than not, people would have given you Chapman and Olsen, list, yeah. and both of them have a, a lot of negative defensive metrics right now. Now, you know, that could play to the fact that there was a lot more foul mm-hmm. territory in Oakland that they're dealing with in Tampa, and excuse me, in Toronto and here in Atlanta. Um, you know, but certainly from an offensive standpoint, Chapman not really doing what he did there. You're not seeing all the power numbers from Olsen right now, but you got to be happy with those doubles, even if you mentioned they're not those home runs that people would be looking for at this point. Yeah, and from the quirky statistics department, if you flash back to 2017, which was Matt Olsen's rookie year, he hit 24 home runs that year. In 59 games, he hit two doubles that season, two doubles and 24 homers. Now it's kind of the inverse of that. He's got 20 doubles and five homers in 48 games now for the Braves. So make of that what you will. Um, but clearly there's a lot of baseball left to be played this year, and for Matt Olson, a lot of opportunity to really step up and maybe kind of right the ship in a number of different categories, not just defensively where beyond the metrics, the eye test sometimes just, just makes you wonder, hey, what's going on out there? And then obviously hitting with runners in scoring position, if he's able to make a big change there and make a big level up, that's going to mean a lot for the Braves offense as well. But that is just a little bit of the inside uh, look at this homestand, which saw the Braves picking up, more wins and losses, a 4-3 and three homestand in seven games. Let's talk about Austin Riley for a minute. He had safely in all seven of those games. Home runs are showing up. Line drives are showing up. Corey, I think he has hit his way out of his slump, and the Braves definitely needed that, and that's allowed them to elevate Austin back into a key run-producing spot in the lineup. And, oh, by the way, that guy Marcelo Zuna has remained hot. The hitting streak has been going for a while, and even if you take an over, you come back with a couple of home runs. That will make you feel pretty good about what you've got happening and throw in Dansby Swanson. Now we're talking about multiple players that are actually hitting pretty well, especially when you got a healthy Ronald Acuna Jr. at the top of the order. Without question, and certainly, you know, Travis Darno, you know, he and uh, Ronald Cunha Jr. on Sunday were the only two Braves to not get on base, but uh, from the production they've gotten from William Contreras and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Darno overall in the season, and 
uh, you know, obviously the arrival of Harris and what he potentially could bring. Uh, it feels like an extremely long lineup, which is the something that Brian Snicker will talk to you about a lot. And um, you know, the thing with the Zuna, I mean, you know, you're coming off you know a game here in which he had an opportunity to to get for that uh, that third home run, but they go back to back. He and uh, Austin Riley do in the first inning off Elzer Hernandez. Uh, the second time this season, the Braves have hit back-to-back homers. So with Azuna, I mean, we were waiting. He was kind of scuffling. Like, everything was seen as though he was chasing stuff. You look on StatCast, and a lot of his, you know, outside-the-zone swings were the highest that they've been at any point in his career, and he just seemed like he was just pressing on everything. But, uh, man, he's uh, he's feeling it right now. And one of those home runs, 458 feet, which is yeah. the longest by any Braves player this season. Well, that was the second home run. The first one was a laser beam that didn't yeah. seem like it got about 30 feet off the ground all the way out over center field, splashing down in that little waterfall. But either way, you want to see more of that from Marcelo Zuna. The Braves have seen a lot of that over the past two or three weeks from him. Those are welcome signs. And I didn't think he was going to let Miami get out of town without getting revenge on his old team. A couple of more home runs against them, as you remember, he had a couple of home runs down in Miami, I believe, or actually a couple in Milwaukee, one in Miami on the recent road trip, and he's made a habit out of getting back at his old team for that trade some years ago. Be that as it may, let's talk about the big news in the Braves outfield, and that, of course, is the promotion of Michael Harris, the Georgia kid getting a big opportunity. This is going to change the dynamics of the Braves outfield, which is one of the many things that we've you know, gone through this season. We've tried to figure out what can they do to fix it, what are the options here, what are – the what's the play from night to night if you don't have Ronald Acuna Jr. out there in right field every single day that obviously clogs up the DH which means Marcelo Zuna can't be in the DH spot you've asked Adam Duvall to cover center field pretty much for every single inning of the 2022 season so far and I think that's kind of taken a toll on him from a defensive standpoint putting all of that aside that's what the Braves were dealing with and they feel like the answer was down in double a it was Michael Harris who in 43 games was batting well over 300, OPSing over 900. He runs well. He fields well. He's got a line drive swing that could turn into some power. At the very least, he's a guy that's got good on base skills. This checks an awful lot of boxes for what the Braves needed, the kind of player they needed. A little bit surprised, though, that they elevated him from double-A this early in the season. But, hey, the opportunity is here, and now Michael Harris has a chance to, and already has in the first three games, shown some of his considerable skills. When we talked about this a week ago, I, I was really of the mind that, okay, maybe Drew Waters is going to get this opportunity before Harris does at the major league level. But, you know, at this point, Waters hasn't played three days in a row since coming back from his yeah. injury. Uh, you know, he's really been strikeout prone. Uh, so doesn't the walk. production hasn't been there right now. You know, Harris, obviously, you know, more than up to the task, especially from a defensive standpoint. And, you know, it's really wild when you think about this, but I th- this may be the the best opportunity that the Braves have to get consistent production both offensively and defensively from the center field position since Michael Bourne. And, you know, they were getting it from from Ender and Ciarte for a stretch, but he dropped off so much offensively. Mm-hmm. You know, I really feel like you, you you go back to the height of Bourne, and I think this really might be the best chance they've had to get that kind of consistent production from that spot. Yeah, and as I look at that, really, to be honest with you, I mean, Michael Bourne wasn't here for that very no, long either. No. So, I mean, he and Inciarte probably had about the same amount of, I would say, peak of their skills or what they brought to the table for the Braves. But yeah, center field has been kind of a question mark in terms of year over year, especially once Inciarte began to struggle. You saw Ronald Acuna Jr. play out there. Obviously, Ender was let go before his contract was even done, and that didn't play out the way you wanted it to. He didn't provide years of what I would say is high-caliber defense, but offensively speaking, it left a, a bit to be desired as you were putting together the lineup and trying to figure out the best ways that you could to put runs on the board. And that is something that you look at the Braves' offense and you look at the Braves' defense in the outfield, 
you'd like to be able to kill two birds with one stone here. And I feel like Harris has a chance to do that because he can affect the game on the base pass. I think he can do it at the plate. I feel like he can do it out in the field as well. We saw it on Sunday with a great diving catch in which he, oddly enough, was was barehanding a ball into his glove. I don't know that I've seen that too many times. I'm hoping that that didn't sting too bad. But, you know, this is is a kid that has all the the requisite skills that you need and I think has worked extremely hard, including in what we would call the lost season of 2020 for minor league players, to make sure his development didn't take a step back, even when he couldn't be out on the field playing against competition 140 times a year, he found a way to make that alternate site work for him. It has, and, and he looks, I mean, he just looks so good defensively. And, I, and I'll, I'll go back to my point here with some numbers for you. If you go back to 2010, there have been two players who logged considerable time in center field for the Braves who have been uh, above league average hitters, and that's Jock Peterson and Ronald Cunha Jr. Those are the only guys who have seen any time at center field since two, 2010 who are above average hitters. And I think that's why you have this opportunity with Harris to, to get that full package. Um, they just haven't, it's just been a, a really, you know, a sad state of things for them from a consistent standpoint. And Ciarte gave you glimpses. Again, he fell off, but I think Harris has a chance to be very special. Yeah, I think he does too. And keep in mind the sample size we're talking about of center fielder Jack Peterson yeah. for the Braves. We're talking about two dozen games. That's not exactly very it's, it's, it's anybody who had any time at right. center field, and it's exactly. been it's been very limited. Yeah, and you would hope that at some point somebody would come along and put together 150 games or something where they could give you at least average production. But but putting it all aside and looking at Michael Harris and the opportunity he has, this is a chance for the Braves to you know promote one of their own from within, a talented player who I think has earned this opportunity. And I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of look at it as if you knew that there was no reason to try someone else beforehand, kind of go to go back to the Drew Waters promotion. I mean, maybe Drew sees the big leagues at some point this year. I don't know. But not being able to play every day, that's a question because I think they need somebody that they just don't have to worry about. Hey, this guy's ready. He can play every single day that we need him to. Yeah, we may give him a day off here and there, but he's ready to be out of the box and out there helping this club every single day. There's no restrictions or workload limits or questions about it because he's not coming back from an injury, which is kind of what Drew Waters has had to deal with in the 2022 season. Uh, All of this kind of ties back into, I think, with Ronald Acuna Jr., who's also had to deal with his fair share of leg injuries this year. Not the knee, thankfully, but he's had a groin injury. He's had a quad injury, minor strain that kept him out for a couple of games. But we saw he was able to come back, make an impact. But I think the Braves are right to be cautious with this. There's no reason not to play it as safely as possible so that you don't turn a short-term injury into perhaps a long-term setback because the club cannot afford to lose Ronald Acuna Jr. for an extended amount of time. No, not at all. And I think, you know, anytime you're coming back from an injury, you always worry about, you know, other injuries around that same area, whether or not a guy's compensating. You know, I mean, you look at out at the Padres with Clevenger, and now he's dealing with some some other issues after coming back from Tommy John sure. surgery. So you got the groin issue, the quadricep uh, issue. You know, I, I think you're going to have to to just be patient with this. There's going to be little things that come along because there was, you know, a lot of stress on that limb, and you know, he's he's trying to work himself back into a, everyday major league production. Uh, just be patient. Yeah. Well, we're going to try to be as patient as we can. He has considerable skills. It's an awful lot of fun to watch that guy out there. We want to see him out there as much as possible. Braves did pick up a win, six to three, over the Marlins on Sunday to take that series. We got a lot more to talk about as far as this week. In Braves baseball is concerned, we'll continue here on From the Diamond right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. 
Welcome back to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Braves have picked up a series victory over the Marlins to wrap up their homestand. They'll head out on the road for seven games. We'll talk about that a little bit more later, but as far as the week that was for the Braves, this week in Braves baseball, there were some good stories to get to, and we haven't gotten to all of them yet, and that's a wonderful thing because we've been talking about a club that's been kind of inconsistent throughout the first six or so weeks of the season. But one thing that has really started to come into focus is the play of Dansby Swanson. The Brave shortstop is, at, I think, performing at a star level at this point. He's been riding a nice long hitting streak. He has been well, well beyond what you could have asked for defensively speaking. He's one of the best defenders in baseball. And I think, Corey, that he is the club's most valuable player to this point in the season. He's already posted a an, an F war over two now as of the time that we sit here recording this to wrap up the weekend. This is what the Braves are hoping for from Dan Spee. He's hitting the ball well. He's running the bases well. He's defending well. This was going to be one of the keys to getting the Braves lineup going, and Dansby Swanson has been at it for a while now. Yeah, and timing couldn't be better considering he's in a contract year. But, yeah. I mean, when you look at the month of May, there have been eight hitters uh, who have been uh, more productive at this point in the year, uh, in this point in this month, than Dansby Swanson has. And you're talking about, like, superstar-level guys, Mookie Betts, Rafael Devers, Paul Goldschmidt, Aaron Judge, Mike Trout, on and on, Manny Machado, Jose Altuve. He's right there with those guys this month. Now, I, I do wonder, though, because we've seen one thing out of Dansby throughout his time in Atlanta, and that's get really, really hot and then get really, really cold. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's, it's just been a thing that he's, you know, ha- had happened throughout his career. I mean, you look at last year, and his weighted on base average jumped 100 points from the season's first month to the second. Then you look at the last two months of the season, August to September, and it dropped 140 points. So I've been really impressed with what he's doing this month. But I do wonder if we're just in the midst of one of those runs where Dansby looks like a superstar and we're going to be looking at this in a few weeks and it's just going to be back to a little bit more of the normalcy that we saw from him. I will couch that, though, by saying when you, when you if you look on the numbers and stat cast from him, nothing year over year is demonstratively better than it was in 2021. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the hard hit rate's actually down a little bit. You know, he's just doing what he, did, he had done before. It's just all working for him right now. So... It's obviously still early enough that you can't maybe get too caught up in the numbers and say this guy is now an elite-level shortstop. But at this point in the season, he's absolutely playing like it. Yeah, I mean, last 15 games, he's batting over 350 on basing over 400. The home runs were there. The run scored. is is Clearly, that's what you're asking him to do. He's not necessarily your biggest run producer, but you want him on base so that other guys can knock him in, particularly when he was hitting down toward the bottom of the order. That's flip-flop, though. He's been asked to hit toward the top because he has been so hot and because at some point, Brian Snitker had to start moving pieces around on the board saying, these are the guys I'm going to play, but I'm going to have to change the order they're going up there because something's got to kickstart this club. Dansby, though, over the last 33 games heading into Sunday, and he was one for four on Sunday against Miami as well, he was batting 325 with half a dozen homers, 22 runs knocked in, 21 runs scored in those, what, 33 games, just under 130 plate appearances, OPS in close to 950. So those are numbers that are going to play, especially when you add in the fact that this guy has made pretty much all the plays at shortstop for the Braves this year. That has been, I wouldn't say revelatory, because he's always been a very good fielder, I think an above-average fielder, but when he is on one of these, if you want to call it a streak, we can call it a streak for now, unless or until it changes. But when he's doing both of these things together, he is one of the most solid players that the Braves have, and he always just seems to also have that knack for being in the middle of either sparking rallies or putting the bow on a nice big rally for the Braves as well. He just finds those moments throughout the course of a season. Yeah, I mean, he's come up clutch so many different times for this team. And, you know, as I mentioned from the get-go there, how 
you know, big this is for him from a personal standpoint because he is going to be a free agent after this season. And this class of shortstops, you know, has a, the potential to be really, really special. Carlos Correa can opt out. You know, you've got Trey Turner, Xander Bogarts, uh, you know, and obviously uh, mentioning Dansby there, you know, Tim Anderson, you know, has a, a club option, which obviously the White Sox are going to pick up. Uh, but this could be a really interesting offseason. We know the Braves kicked the tires a little bit on Carlos Correa this mm-hmm. past winter. Uh, I thought maybe of the, I was of the mind when they were going into this arbitration situation with Dansby that maybe they figured out a way to you know get a multi-year deal with him instead of going to a hearing, which the hearing is actually going to happen. It could be happening at any point now. They, those were all weirdly going into the season this year because of the lockout. You know, the lockout. So uh, he's doing this at absolutely the right time, and I'll be interested to see what is the book on Dansby Swanson if the Braves can't come up with something from a multi-year standpoint going into this winter. Yeah, I mean, it's a pivotal year for him. It's a pivotal year for the Braves to think about this position because there has been some continuity with having him there. There have been some highs and lows to the offensive side of things, but when you do think about the amount of winning that this club has done over the last four years and you think about the moments that he's been involved in for this club, I would say that he has made a a pretty steady contribution, even if he hasn't broken out to become the superstar player that a lot of people expect a number one overall draft pick to become. He's been a good contributor to a Braves club that's been more than good most years and won it all a season ago. And by the way, who got the last out on that? It was Dansby Swanson out there. So he'll be on a Braves highlight for a very, very, very long time. That's one we're going to be playing over and over and over again. Let me switch the page to Mike Soroka here because this is a name that Braves fans, I think, look forward to hearing. But more so than hearing how he's doing, they want to see how he's doing. They want to see him back on a major league mound. It's been nearly two years, and his twice-torn Achilles has made it a long road back to the big leagues for Mike Soroka, and he's not done yet. But he is going to be hitting the road, heading down to Florida to the Braves Spring Training Complex, where he will begin getting off the mound on a regular basis. He will be facing hitters in sim games. He'll be throwing bullpens, and ultimately he will go out on a rehab assignment, which will then start that 30-day window for when you can really start to feel like, okay, now I have a more clear timeline for Mike. It could be late July. It could be early August. We don't really know yet. It could be later in August. We'll kind of find out how this whole thing plays out. But hearing him on the broadcast the other day on on Bally Sports, sitting out in the bleachers with Jeff Francoeur and Chip Carey, just talking about, you could tell the excitement was there. You can see, and you've talked to Mike Soroka, and we've seen him as well, he seems to be in peak physical condition. This guy has done everything he can on his side to control the controllables, and now he just needs to get back out there, prove himself healthy, avoid any and all setbacks, and he's still just 24 years old. The Braves have a chance to maybe have this kid around for a longer time because the wear and tear on his arm the last couple of years certainly hasn't been there. And I think that's the really interesting part of it. You know, he said that he had had conversations with Alex Anthopoulos, the Braves GM, that, you know, he's going to get to them with two years less wear and tear on that arm whenever he does end up coming back this year. Um, certainly, you know, there's the the trepidation, I think, more so than from fans, like, oh, man, is this guy going to be able to be what he was before? But when you, you know, talking to Mike, I mean, he's, he's clear that he feels fantastic. You know, he doesn't feel you know, any issues at all planning on that foot now, uh, you know, after two, you know, ruptured Achilles at this point, and he has not pitched in a game since August 3rd of 2020, which just seems absolutely insane to say that out loud. But, um, you know, he looks good, feels good. You know, we'll see if that ends up meaning play good. Uh, But, you know, certainly a July return for him would be really interesting for this club because, 
You know, the, that fifth spot in the rotation has continued to be that real question mark with this team, and I think it's, you know, really critical how they decide to handle that the rest of the year on whether or not they're going to be able to catch the Mets in this division. So do they do they feel like they can go out? Do they have to go out and do something? I think Soroka's always been that nugget that says, eh, maybe you don't have to be too aggressive out there on the market, whether it's via trade or this winter via free agency, uh, to get that spot in the rotation filled. We'll see what he's able to do. I mean, certainly he's never been a guy that was – you know, going out there really, you know, throwing hard on a consistent basis. He's always been more of that field pitcher, that guy that, you know, that crafty, crafty guy that has can bring so much to the table. Uh, so I, I'm really interested to see how he does. I know there's an anxiousness with Mike to get back out there, and uh, the clock is going to start ticking on him to get that return here. And we'll see if he's in there by the All Star break. But certainly, this could be huge, and uh, he's obviously excited. Yeah, everybody's excited about it, and the fact that you could have back one of the best pitchers that you had at your disposal as the club began to make its run and, you know, winning it in 2019, winning the National League East. Soroka was the guy that you know, a lot of people looked at, man, if he'd thrown more than once in a division series with the Braves have gone on to the uh, National League Championship Series back then. And then, of course, 2020, he wasn't able to get very far at all into a season before that first Achilles tear happened. You look at the fifth spot of this rotation. Let's talk about that for a moment. After Kyle Wright and Max Fried, Ian Anderson and Charlie Morton, all of whom have made nine starts, The Braves have employed Bryce Elder, Tucker Davidson at four starts and three starts, respectively. Two starts from Waskari Noah, an opener start from Jesse Chavez, and Kyle Muller has also made one start. There's not been any consistency in the fifth spot. Tucker Davidson was the most recent one. He had a a good start against Milwaukee. He had a rough start against uh, Philadelphia. Then he bounced back a bit against the Marlins. A a couple of more walks than I feel like uh, that could have gotten him into some trouble, but they didn't. you got to find an answer here. I don't know that you can just say, hey, Mike Soroka is the answer. Let's not do anything else. But you're kind of hoping that he's as close to plan A as you can possibly get. But in the meantime, the Braves have to figure out ways to get good production out of the fifth spot in the order, or excuse me, fifth spot in the rotation and the fifth spot in the order for that matter. (laughs) But it's just been such a black hole, and you have had no consistency out of it, even if you've tried to give Elder and Davidson the opportunity to throw multiple starts in a row to just see, hey, maybe they find something. But we really haven't found a clear and consistent answer yet. No, and, you know, Tucker Davidson's last outing was an improvement. I mean, you know, he ends up going five innings, you know, uh, on Saturday. It wasn't bad. It wasn't bad, you know. But he, obviously the walks were an issue, ends up walking four. He's walked four in back-to-back outings there. You know, you look at all those guys that you mentioned. If you take Chavez out of the equation, you're talking about an ERA north of eight from all those guys that have filled that that fifth spot. and. You know, certainly no one is is looking for that to be, you know, into the mix here when you talk about those other four guys and Kyle Wright on a roll, Max Fried finding his groove again after that uh, opening uh, day debacle against the Reds, mm-hmm. you know, Ian Anderson, Charlie Morton. You need to, to have some level of consistency in that spot. They haven't had it uh, at this point. So I think that that's why Monday night uh, in Arizona is going to be such an intriguing game to watch and see what Spencer Strider yeah. is able to do at that spot because this is you know there's a lot of excitement and a lot of potential in that arm and uh, we'll see what he's able to do again. It, are you looking to bridge the gap until you get to Soroka? Are you or are you looking to find an answer? I think that is the real big question with this uh, rotation right now. Well, the good thing is is that depending on how the whole thing plays out, I mean, the number one thing is Mike Soroka is not walking through the door next week. So you've you've got to figure out an answer for what looks like to be roughly two months worth of time. Should you have, you know, broken the glass in case of emergency and use Spencer Strider as a starter a little bit earlier? Perhaps. There's a very good case to be made for that. There's no two ways about that. He has, however, been quite a weapon for you out of the bullpen, which is 
an important thing. But the Braves have already used nine starting pitchers as they played their 48th game on Sunday against the Marlins. You know the big four at the, at the top, which was Max Freed, Charlie Morton, Ian Anderson, and Kyle Wright. Those guys have combined to start 36 of those games, and the Braves have had to use five other you know, potential fifth spot of the rotation candidates. And if you want to count Jesse Chavez as that, but he was an opener for Spencer Strider on that particular night. Regardless, though, the whole thing has you just wondering and waiting about the possibility of having Mike Soroka back. And I know that as the Braves have gone through the last couple of years and had to win without him, that maybe it's kind of faded to the background at times and people haven't necessarily thought about it a lot. But I do think there's still a lot to get excited about with this kid because we saw what he could be over the first what year and a half of his big league career before he got hurt. And again, he is still just 24 years old. This Achilles business is very unfortunate, but I wouldn't count this kid out by a long shot. And I also wouldn't count him out of being an impact-type pitcher in the second half for the Braves as well. It's just how far can they push him or how hard can they push him and how fast. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm wondering with Spencer Strider here, you know, how, how – I mean – I really like him in the role he's in, right? So I wonder, you know, if are you pushing your luck a little bit, you know, by putting him out there and seeing if he's able to give you consistent starts because he has been so effective uh, in that bullpen role mm-hmm. with one of the, you know, the top ten strikeout rates in all of baseball uh, when you look at qualified relievers. There's just nothing. There's just no other options, right? I mean, Dallas Keuchel just got DFA'd from the White Sox. I mean, are you looking at bringing yeah, in a guy so. that you have a history with, who, but who has had a ERA over seven this year? You know, the guys that they've brought in, you know, in-house have just not performed well. Even Tuki Toussaint, who hasn't gotten that chance uh, among those fifth starter options this year, is not doing well in Gwinnett right now either. So, you know, there's just – I don't want to say you're scraping the bottom of the barrel because Spencer Strider is not scraping the bottom of the barrel, but you you, you need an answer. And right now that, that answer has not uh, shown itself. But maybe they've been scraping the bottom of the barrel in hopes that you find something. If And I don't know that it's necessarily fair to point that. At, I mean, Cal Muller got one start. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. that's not necessarily the way I would really look at that. I mean, could Tucker Davidson go out there and maybe aim to give you five innings? Every few days, yeah, he could. But if they don't feel like he's the guy and they feel like, oh, now's the time. Spencer Strider's done enough and shown enough. Because also, when you think about Spencer Strider, he didn't have a lot of big league experience coming into this year. He got that little showcase at the end of the season last year to see, hey, can you help us in a bullpen role? And, you know, was he able to do that? No, that didn't necessarily play out. But was he able to do it so far in 2022? The answer to that has been yes. We got a lot more. Uh, to talk about when it comes to the Atlanta Braves. But as we come back, we will shift our focus to what else is happening across Major League Baseball. It's from the Diamond continues here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Taking a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We are going to talk a lot more about the Atlanta Braves who head out on a seven-game road trip, and we'll do that a little bit later in the show. They did pick up a nice win over the Miami Marlins in order to send themselves out on a good note as well. That's always nice to win that finale and then head out on the road with hopefully a little bit of momentum, but we got a lot to get into when it comes to big stories from around Major League Baseball, we call this three up and three down, six of the biggest stories across the game of baseball for the week that was. And I would say, Corey, without question, one of the most bizarre ones I have ever heard went down this week in Cincinnati where Reds outfielder Tommy Pham had a pregame altercation with Giants outfielder Jock Peterson, our old friend. Now, apparently this all stemmed from big money in a fantasy football league that the two men, along with several other players, including several Padres, whom 
at the time Tommy Pham was playing for, this, this being last year, I guess Pham took issue with something Peterson sent to the group text last September. So he slapped Peterson prior to Friday's game out in the middle of the outfield. Pham's actions landed him a three-game suspension, and given the back and forth that went on between these two in the press afterwards and all of the commentary and all of the details that have come out since then, I am guessing that Pham, who did not like having his money messed with in the fantasy league, is probably not enjoying that three-game suspension and having his money messed with yet again. This feels like between two ferns, you know, is that Galifianakis, when you think about the delivery, the deadpan delivery that Jock Peterson has had through this thing, and he, you know, on Saturday he broke out his phone and showed reporters the, the gift that he had sent uh, to the group chat, which included a former a, a number of uh, Padres that he was had been friends with, um, it showed a weightlifter dropping a weight. You know, this was when the Padres were not not playing well, had the Padres logo on it, um, and Fam re- replied and said he you know he didn't know him well enough for them to be making jokes like this, and right, yeah, you know, just the whole thing. I mean, if you ever watched that show, The League on FX. And it was like the absurdity of of fantasy football. Mm-hmm. This is that like if this had happened on television, you would have thought that's ridiculous. Yeah, this is real. No, it's certainly it, ridiculous. Yeah. And even I don't even know where to begin with something like this. Where this was last September for for one yeah. thing, and apparently it had gotten so twisted that Jock Peterson was waiting on reporters so that he could explain exactly what happened because it felt like for a minute that Fam was turning the whole thing into more than it really should have. And it really, in the fantasy league, it should never be anything, to be honest with you. But, you know, I can understand. There's, they're competitive people. they got money on the line. Nobody likes having their team made fun of, so on and so forth. I'll give them all the credit in the world for that. But for whatever reason, I just cannot understand why it is that Tommy Pham would get this twisted about it. Dom, what do you got? So this story was pretty crazy to me. I just wanted to know, though, can you guys imagine anything like that you would hold a grudge for a year over? <laughs> No. That you would eventually end up slapping somebody when you finally saw them again? Nothing that has the word fantasy in the title. I can tell you that. <laughs> I mean, there's some reality stuff that you can hold on to for a long time. Yeah. We've all been there, and we've all had things and people and situations that just really get under your skin and make no sense. And some of those can happen on an everyday basis. But really hanging in there for and hanging on that and chewing on that for so for- long, that is a, it's kind of the next level of just of money. holding a grudge. Well, the fact that FAM dropped out of the league... I think, you know, makes it, I'm assuming like these guys are not, this is not, you know, $50 buy-in. This is like, you know, in, you know, some upper tier fantasy money that we're talking about here. So yeah, the the fact that he held the grudge that long, I mean, just think like if you actually did Tommy Pham wrong, how dire the consequences must be. I have no real scenario that I can come up with again, that would allow me as a grown adult to slap another man in a fantasy league for things related to the fantasy league. And I've argued about some fantasy baseball in my life. I've argued less about fantasy football in my life, but I just don't understand the vitriol that was going on between those two. But now Tommy Pham's going to have three games to think about it because, again, there's certain things that you can and can't do when it comes to arguing over fantasy sports. And I would say that slapping a man on the field Another team at that, as a Major League Baseball player, as a professional athlete, there are just certain things that you've just got to rise above at that point. And I would think that a joke about your fantasy league would be in the pile of things that I would refer to as, you know, lesser of the, of the problems going on in the world today. Meanwhile, and more so on a baseball standpoint, Mookie Betts has been among the game's best players for a while, but his offensive exploits in Los Angeles had not quite quite reached that MVP level that he's shown in Boston, and that is until now, because Betts is on a home run binge that leads the National League with 14 of those coming into Sunday, already approaching 50 runs scored in just 44 games played. 
And all of that and a host of other things he does well has uh, brought bets, I think, to among the front runners for most valuable player as we have passed the quarter point of the 2022 season, Corey. Yeah, second overall with a 3-4 fan graph war right now, ninth uh, with a 178 weighted run creative plus. These last two weeks, I mean, since homering on May 14th against the Phillies, he has a 1,400 OPS, eight home runs, seven doubles, 17 RBIs, hitting 407 in that stretch. He has been nearly a two-war player just uh, that that two-week stretch alone. I mean, it's it's been absolutely insane. And then when you couple that with a scorching hot Freddie Freeman, I mean, this Dodgers team has is the only team in baseball that has two qualified hitters in the top eight in uh, Fangraph War right now. So, I mean, it's uh, it, it's insane level uh, production from these two and, and uh, bets especially. I mean, th- this is the best offense in baseball. And when you take a guy with the the considerable talents that Mookie Betts has and has him performing at this level, I mean, it's uh, it's just not fair. Yeah, I mean, well, the Dodgers have tried to build a lineup for many years that would qualify as it's not fair. And they signed Mookie Betts to a big-time, you know, big-time uh, contract. And I'm not going to say that he's been a huge underperformer for them because I think he's had some moments for him, certainly. And, I mean, they won the World Series in 2020, so that is something that they'd be able to point to and say, wait, well, hey, we bring Mookie Betts over to do things like this. And I know that in that 2020 NLCS, it would be too soon if I ever needed to see Mookie Betts you know, making another dramatic and great catch out in right field, but he's not going to stop just because I'm tired of seeing it. And this, <laughs> putting the offense with the defense, he runs the base as well. He's just the kind of player that you like to build a team around, and the Dodgers have quite a few players that you could build a team around. And, in fact, Mookie Betts is at the center of that and all the big things that they've been doing uh, so far this year to take over first place in the National League West, which is probably one of the least surprising stories that we'll talk about on From the Diamond. Speaking of hot bats, though, Trevor Story, who used to play out in the NL West with Colorado, he went supersonic over a seven-game stretch that would be a great month's worth of production for many, if not most, hitters. Story, who'd been struggling through his first month with the Red Sox, broke out in a big way. He put together, Corey, a seven-game stretch that got broken up last week in which he belted seven home runs, and he drove in 21 runs. And, in fact, that made him just a sixth player in Major League Baseball history to accomplish that, seven homers and 21 runs knocked in in a seven-game stretch since the RBI became an official statistic back in 1920. So it looks like to me, just based on these numbers, that Trevor Story, despite some lackluster early returns, may in fact be able to hit a little bit away from Coors Field. Uh, yes, and he's got 32 RBI in the month of May, uh, which is just absolutely unreal. And you know, he's that's that's seventh most all-time in May, and he needs 10 more uh, in these next couple of days to break Ted Williams' uh, May record of 41. So it may not get that to that point unless he goes on another ridiculous stretch like he just did. But I mean, think about it. May 5th, he struck out four times against the Angels and got booed. That yeah. he's not getting he's not getting booed again. I mean, this his season is one of the craziest stories that I can remember in recent memory from you know a, a swing that a guy went on. He was hitting twenty five percent below league average in April, and he is fifty six percent above league average in May. An eighty one percent swing month over month. Um, this looked like one of the you know most questionable signings uh, early in the season with when you, you think about guys leaving cores in the drop off in production, but. Um, he is more than found his groove in Boston, and I think it may be, you know, you think about, you know, what are they going to do, uh, you know, with the shortstop position there with, with Xander Bogarts? Are they going to yep. hold on to him? Are they going to move him? Because you know, certainly story changed positions to go to Boston. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think you feel a little bit better if you're if you're the, uh, the Fenway operating group there yep. about what he can potentially bring to shortstop. I would imagine. So if you look at what he's done so far and coming into Sunday at 41 games this season, he has already more than he's he's eclipsed his RBI total from the uh, strike uh, strike shortened the COVID shortened season of 
2020. He played 59 of the 60 games that year, drove in 28 runs. He's played 41 games this year, 37 runs. In fact, he almost matched his RBI total, and I know seven more would have been a lot to ask in one week. But when you drive in 21 runs in one week, I mean, that's got to earn you a little bit from the Fenway faithful, and not just the group that signed you, but also the folks that buy those tickets, and yeah. very much will let you know if your performance is not up to par. That's right. They might even throw a piece of pizza at you, which is one of my all-time <laughs> favorite Red Sox fan moments of all time. And if you have not seen that, then you need to Google uh, Red Sox and Pizza Toss, I believe, is the uh, is the YouTube video. So we'll take a look at that at some point, but not on the radio because we don't have the video capabilities. However, we do have the capabilities of talking about the New York Mets, who have been playing some good baseball despite having to cobble together their starting rotation for quite a while now. Down Jacob deGrom, who we'll talk about in a moment. Also now down Max Scherzer. But on Saturday... They dispatched to the Phillies by a 9-2 score, and in that game, Jeff McNeil connected for a go-ahead home run. There was a lot of rain going on, and apparently something else was happening at the ballpark because the circumstances were unusual, and McNeil believes that he spotted an eagle prior to hitting that home run. Take a listen to this. Buck said to ask you about the eagle. Oh, yeah, I saw something like something like land on the railing up there, and then like... I don't know what was going on. I think some fans saw it up there. I have no idea. I just saw it before before I uh, you know, took that at bat, and then I hit a homer. <laughs> the right field back on the left corner? Top yeah, corner yeah. Same thing. I saw you something. Was an eagle? I don't know what it was. <laughs> it was a bird. It was definitely a bird? It was, a, I don't know. You were closer than we were, so. You what was it? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. There's a lot of different kinds of birds out there. I don't know. So you aimed for it? Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Not just coincidence, I guess. Now, I don't know if you believe in omens, Corey, but it's certainly something you don't see every day. An eagle that was not brought to the park for a specific reason for a pregame ceremony to just show up unannounced. Yeah, I sort of wonder if this is like if you've seen the HBO show Peacemaker. You know, John Cena's character has a pet eagle named Eagly that is, you know, has uh, some special abilities. So maybe this is what happened is the planted eagle I, from Peacemaker is helping Jeff McNeil. I don't know that they're in uh, – is there a multiverse for – Suicide Squad? I'm not really sure. I know there's a couple of different movies that make no sense from a continuity standpoint with one another. The DC Cinematic Universe makes no sense whatsoever. No, it but is not, it is not designed well. That show is very good. The opening <laughs> dance scene, I know we're going on a tangent here, the opening dance scene from Peacemaker will no doubt make its way to weddings across the universe in the next few years, and it will be well worth everyone's time to learn it. Well, I will have to take a look at that if, in fact... I can see him in order to (laughs) see how this dance goes. Meanwhile, the Mets are also eagerly anticipating the return of Jacob deGrom, as I mentioned. Now, he announced this week that his shoulder is back to normal. He is waiting for the club to clear him to start throwing so he can ramp up and get on the mound again. A stress reaction in his scapula is what cropped up in spring training. That put the 33-year-old ace on the shelf all season long, but a recent MRI revealed complete healing in that shoulder. So, Corey, it's been a solid eight months now since deGrom pitched competitively in a big league game, the lockout didn't help him. In fact, he points to that as saying, this is one of the reasons why I think I hurt myself, is because we came back to spring training and everybody had to ramp up so quickly. And it may be a while longer before New York's able to welcome him back into rotation, but they got to be excited to start hearing that, hey, Jacob deGrom is ready to throw off a mound again. Yeah, and on Friday he you know, was playing catch at 135 feet. They're still not sure when he's going to throw his first bullpen or be ready right. to actually see right. game action. But you got to think, I mean, it's going to be you know, a, a multi-start ramp-up before you're going to worry about seeing Jacob deGrom in an actual Mets uniform. Uh, but you know, him saying he feels completely normal I've, it is certainly the best news I think you can hope for you know, from a Mets standpoint right now because you know, certainly with him and Scherzer being out, you sort of look at that pitching market and wonder, do the Mets need to be aggressive? Do they go out and get Frankie Montas? Do they look at Tyler, Tyler Malley, who pissed really well for the, the Reds today mm-hmm. uh, on Sunday? 
I don't know that they need to because unless you're going to go out and get one of those guys that's going to start game one, two, or three for you in a play in a postseason series, why do you need to you know make another aggressive move? They conceivably have you know Jacob Degrom, Max Scherzer, and Chris Bassett locking down those spots. Um, this is big to not to hear that he's feeling normal because I think that's the big thing and it, a byproduct as you mentioned of that ramp up and that time you know when the there was no contact between you know the the medical staffs and the players mm-hmm. and, and knowing that he was dealing with this issue you know from uh, a stress reaction you know because of a delayed spring training I mean it all ties together uh, with that kind of that forced ramp up these players went through but I think from the bottom line. Him saying the words completely normal is the best thing that you can hope for. If you're the yeah, uh, some news that Mets fans have been waiting for, and it's, I'm sure, something Jacob deGrom has been waiting to be able to announce to when he got the clearance from doctors to say, hey, it looks like you've healed up here, but the medical staff does have to make a plan and make a determination about what the throwing program is going to be for him. Now, normally on the show here, and especially on three up and three down here on From the Diamond, we like to stick with Major League Baseball stories, but I could not resist this one from the college ranks that I saw this week because it's quite simply – Unbelievable, one of the craziest games, at least in recent memory, in college baseball history. UCLA beat Oregon State by a 25-22 to 22 score. Now, by the simple math, this one had 47 runs scored and had 53 hits, a game-tying balk, and a walk-off home run. All of that transpired over the course of 5 hours and 44 minutes and took 10 innings to complete, and it was Tommy Barris who won it with a three-run shot to break a 22-22 to 22 tie. The walk-off blast then He had driven in six runs this year in 27 games. He drove in seven runs from the seventh inning on to help UCLA complete this improbable comeback as they trailed by nine runs going into the ninth inning. And again, I just had to point this out, Corey, because these are the things you don't see every day. 527 pitches thrown by 16 different pitchers. Is that Uh, it? Yeah, the 47 total runs, the most scored in more than 8,000 Division I games this year. The last time an MLB game scored that many was 1922, so... Um, you know, you you want to look at uh, if you if you miss offense in this you know this season here where offense hasn't always been you know part of the equation. Go back and watch the replay because this uh, this thing was bonkers. Yeah, I went to go watch the the home run, the walk off shot by Barris, and the thing that just jumped out to me right away was I felt like, and this is just coming from somebody who's done play by play, the utter exhaustion of the guys that had to be calling a game for nearly six hours. I did minor league games by myself. I called one that was about five and a half hours. That was the longest one. It was 19 innings that I called. It was not as exciting as 25 to 22. Of course, if I had to call 47 runs over the course of that five and a half hours, I might have blown my voice out before I even got to the 19th inning. But be that as it may, just a really, really crazy day uh, for those two teams. And that wraps up are three up and three down. we got a lot more good stuff to get to, though, here on From the Diamond. As when we come back, we will be going around the big leagues to break down what's happening across the National League. Again, you're listening to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, back to more From the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you. These are the Kia Studios. This is Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We have a lot to get into here as we take our look around the big leagues and we begin in the National League. We've already talked a little bit about the Mets on a couple of stories that I thought were interesting from this past week. The big story all season long, though, has been, Corey, I think, the play of the Mets. We knew they went out, they, went, they spent the big money. They signed Max Scherzer. They got Starling Marte. They got Mark Connor. They made the, uh, the trade as well to get Chris Bassett, bring him over. Those just some of the highlights of the Mets offseason, which was a very busy one. 
But then you knew they were going to go into the season without Jacob DeGrom. So you thought, okay, well, they should be better. But how much better can they be? And the answer has been better than everybody else in the division by a long shot. They currently have an eight-game lead over the Atlanta Braves, who did win on Sunday. And that, of course, is pending the finale of the Mets and the Philadelphia Phillies, who are wrapping up a series. Braves are eight back. Phillies, if they lose again, will drop to 11.5 back and into fourth place. This has been, quite simply, as of right now, Kind of a runaway for the Mets. I know there's a lot of baseball left to be played, but as we know and as we've talked about many, many times, it's early until it's not. And I feel like some of the teams in the National League East have to be feeling that a little bit, don't they? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think the thing I look at with the Mets is that offense because we spent a lot of time this, you know, once they signed Max Scherzer dissecting, man, this could be, you know, the top one, two that we've maybe seen in recent memory with, you know, DeGrom and Scherzer atop that rotation. Then you go out and get Chris Bassett and, you know, is Carlos Carrasco going to be back and Taiwan Walker? And it had a chance mm-hmm. to be just a really special rotation. Obviously, injury has has stopped that from happening. But this is the second best offense uh, in terms of Fangraph War right now behind the Dodgers and Pete Alonzo, man. What a, what a season this guy's having. Yeah. The most RBI ever for a Met through 48 games. He had 46 uh, before Memorial Day, which is a Mets record. Bernard Gilkey had that mark until Friday. Uh, former so, brave Bernard yeah, Gilkey that's right. Well. And he has the NL lead. Uh, Jose Ramirez from the Indians leading all of baseball. But um, he has four games uh, to still try to get uh, the, the team's first 47 uh, since 2000. You know, Jason Giambi, Scott Rowland, Carlos Lee in 2005 are the others to get 47 RBI uh, in the first in this month. So uh, he's, he's just been really, really productive. And then you look at the guys that they went out and got. They got Mark Kana, who's hitting above league average. Starling Marte, uh, Eduardo Escobar is just a tick below that right now. So it's just a really deep lineup. Uh, you know, I, I know that they've watched, you know, Francisco Lindor struggle a year ago. He's back to looking like Francisco Lindor did when he was Especially a Cleveland lately, Indian. Yeah. yeah, so this is just a really good, really deep offense. I, I've talked before about some some concerns I have with the, the hard hit rate not being where you want it to and a contact rate being really high, and those may not ultimately level themselves out across the duration of a season. But if Pete Alonso is going to be you know, smacking balls all over the field and these other guys are being you know, having this level of play, uh, this is going to be a really tough out. And the pitching has a has a longer leash now uh, because this offense is so good. Yeah, and Francisco Lindor has been on an RBI binge over the past week or two, and this was a guy that they went out and signed to a three hundred million dollar contract to be their franchise fixture. And I can understand that you know you felt like Lindor was going to get it from somewhere. Cleveland didn't seem to be the club that was going to give it to him. They did lock down Jose Ramirez, so he's going to be a guardian for quite some time. But uh, Lindor coming to the Mets, I, I felt like this, I mean this could be a franchise shifting move. And quite simply, it has not been to this point. But that doesn't mean that he's not young enough to really start putting some things together. And he is a guy that uh, we talk about with Ronald Acuna Jr. and with some other players. And like he can run well, he can field well, he can hit well, he can make a big difference. And I think that Lindor, if he finds himself there in New York, which seems to be a challenge for some players when they get over there, particularly uh, when they go over to the Mets, that they just don't seem to live up to prior billing or prior expectation or just the lofty expectations that you have from going to a New York club. If he's able to do it, then the Mets are going to be a pretty dangerous club considering all that they've added. Starling Marte has been, I think, just exactly what they needed to help stabilize that outfield. They've got some guys like Jeff McNeil, who we talked about, about Brandon Nimmo. You throw those in there, and they've been stabilizers in this lineup as well to go with everything that they've added. But Pete Alonso, yeah, 12 home runs, 46 runs knocked in in his first 48 games. You remember, he had popped, what, 50 home runs as a rookie a couple of years ago mm-hmm. to win the Rookie of the Year award in a year where – any other season, I think Mike Soroka probably wins that award going away. But Alonzo 
you know, he showed up in a big-time way with that big season, and now it looks like he is providing the power that the Mets need in the middle of that lineup. Meanwhile, the Braves, they split a series with the Phillies. That really didn't help out either club, quite obviously. Uh, the Braves need to win as many games as they can head-to-head against National League foes. Atlanta has won 6 out of 10. Meanwhile, the Phillies and the Marlins both have lost 7 out of 10. Uh, Nationals are just kind of floundering there toward the bottom and kind of one step forward, one step back, and haven't really been a factor. But the struggles of Juan Soto have been one of the big stories, I think, of this season. He has simply not looked like the hitter he has shown himself to be over the past few years. He hasn't, and, and it's you know odd you know, just because it, I think we've, we've – you watch Juan Soto work, and you think, man, this guy's never going to have a, a, a bad day. I mean, he's just so in control, and in this, just has a, such a you know advanced understanding of the strike zone. And I mean, it's you know, it's 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 amazing to watch this guy uh, operate. So you, I don't think you ever anticipated he was going to have an off day, and it kind of speaks to you know an, an offense that just hasn't you know really produced. I, th- I found this wild that Patrick Corbin. You know, he finally got his first win of the season in his eighth start, and he had the ninth lowest run support among all pitchers at just 1.8. Thursday night, he got his first win since September 23rd of 2021. Yeah. So this offense just has been, you know, completely missing. Uh, so, you know, it, obviously Juan Soto, a big part of that. You know, you think about the centerpiece of all, of everything happening there in D.C. Um, so they're, you know, obviously you know been bad offensively. And then you mentioned the Phillies. I can't. I knew that they were. We obviously watched the way that they put this team together in the offseason. Mm-hmm. You said, okay, they're willing to put defense off to the side yeah. when you bring in Nick Castellanos. They might have put it Kyle too Schwarber. far out there. They are dead last in with minus 27 defensive runs saved. Think about as great as we talk about JT Rumuto being from a defensive standpoint. Think about, you know, during that Braves series, him his throw to try and get Dansby Swanson a second base that flies over, you know, past one outfielder and then another and then, you know, Drupal Herrera goes for the ball and it goes underneath his glove. I mean, it's just been insane how bad they've been defensively. They lost to the Mets on Friday. They had a sixth run, sixth inning, six run, sixth inning, and they lost because of two errors. Mm-hmm. The defense is so bad in Philly. It's a, there are so, every team in this division, uh, outside of, I think, the Mets and the Braves, who, you know, I don't know that there's a lot of holes within those teams. The other ones, just like every one of them, you look at and think, okay, if we could put these three teams together, Maybe we'd have a really good team. Every one of them seems to have like a deficiency. And with mm-hmm. the Nationals, it's that offense right now. And certainly with the Phillies, it is without question defense. Yeah, it's a crazy thing to watch when you just feel like, okay, well, I knew it could be bad, but how bad can it be? <laughs> and then they kind of lower the bar. They're not raising the bar. They're lowering the bar time and time again. Meanwhile, in the Central, the Cardinals are doing their best to keep up with the Milwaukee Brewers. But the Brewers have used their dominance at home to build a two-and-a-half game lead coming into play on Sunday as you look at the home records, it's 14-6 and six at home for Milwaukee. Every other club except for the Cardinals is under 500 at home, and every other club in that division except for the Cardinals, you know, in addition to the Brewers, are all under 500 overall. So this appears to be, I would say, a two-team race, and it's a three-and-a-half game cushion heading into Memorial Day on Monday that the Brewers have that nice little lead over the St. Louis Cardinals. But the Cards... They're getting some serious push from Paul Goldschmidt, who we talked about Mookie Betts being an MVP candidate earlier on. Maybe Pete Alonso's in that discussion as well for what he's doing with the Mets, who have you know, one of the best records in baseball. 
But, man, Paul Goldschmidt is having quite the renaissance here in 2022. He is. I mean, it, it, what, it was right in an 18-game hitting streak, an on-base pers- uh, streak of 32 straight games. I mean, he's hit over 440 on this streak. Remember, Nolan Arenado was NL Player of the Month in April, and I think Paul Goldschmidt's going to have a really strong chance uh, to deliver another, though Pete Alonso is going to have something to say about that. But um, 20 extra base hits in May, and he's got time to exceed the 22 set by Stan Musial and equal by Albert Pujols. A little bit back to the Brewers, though. They, they've gotten it so much done with that pitching staff, the second-best starting staff in the NL, uh, the second-best ERA. Uh, something to watch, though. Brandon Woodruff left Friday's night start with a right yeah, ankle inflammation. That, yeah. They already have Freddie Peralta on the injured list uh, with a right shoulder strain. He's expected to be you know, out for a considerable amount of time. They've already dipped into the minor league ranks there uh, to kind of fill the gap with Peralta. You've got Corbin Burns. You've got Adrian Hauser, Eric Lauer. I think it's going to be a real test for them to see how much they can – withstand in terms of a hit to their pitching staff to hold off that Cardinals team because if Arenado and Goldschmidt are hitting at this level, I mean, this thing is going to be a lot tighter than I think we anticipated. Yeah, last 26 games for Goldschmidt, 101 at-bats. He has 40 hits, so he's hitting almost 400. He's on base and close to 460. OPS is approaching 1250. Nine homers and 12 doubles among his 40 hits. 30 runs knocked in, 18 more runs scored. Now, Arenado is hitting sub-200 the last 26 games, so you're not really getting quite as much of a one-two punch as it does look like when you just kind of look at the overall season. I think that Arenado's kind of in the same boat that maybe Matt Olson's in, where it's like, hey, looking pretty good here for a couple of three weeks. Could be my year. All of a sudden, you kind of hit the skids for three or four weeks, and then you kind of have to figure it out again. It's a constant game of adjustments is what baseball truly is, and that's going to come for just about every single player at some point during a season. But just overall, I mean, it is the Cardinals who are going to try to chase down the Brewers, the Cubs, have played you know, about the same level of baseball as the Pirates this year, which I think that was probably not altogether surprising, though maybe the Pirates have won a couple of three more games than I thought they would. Cincinnati, though, has been just a really, really uh, bad baseball team this year. But when you trade away a whole bunch of your best players in an offseason, that typically is one of the things that you open yourself up to the very next year. Let's go out west where the Dodgers have been on quite the tear. They're taking on the Arizona Diamondbacks to close out the weekend. The Braves will see the Diamondbacks on Monday our old friend Freddie Freeman's been on quite the bender for L.A. As addition, in addition to Mookie Betts, 32-14 and 14 on the year, have won three in a row and eight out of ten rolling in. And as the Padres continue to play well over 500 ball, they find themselves three games back as of the action going on on Sunday. The Padres, though, are dealing with no further Mike Clevenger issues here. Back on the I.L. after just three starts in his return from Tommy John surgery, a right tricep strain this time. Um, the expectation is he's going to be back once he's allowed to coming off the 15-day I.L. Uh, but they got some kind of bad news this week from Fernando Tatis Jr. as well. Bob, Mel- uh, Bob Melvin said that uh, you know the lat- latest bone scan, You know he still doesn't have clearance from doctors to even start swinging a bat. So I think you looked at him being back in the latter part of June. I, maybe that you know at this point is, is a pipe dream. Maybe you're looking at closer to the All-Star break for Tatis to get back in action. Um, but... You know, not some good news for that team as they try to catch the the Dodgers. So, I mean, we mentioned you know the run that Mookie Betts has been on, uh, Freddie Freeman playing extremely well. So, I just you know the the Padres almost have to feel like they just can't catch a break here. You know, seemingly when they they get you know Blake Snell's back in action, Clevenger comes back, he's he's out again. Still can't get to Tease to even get close to action. So mm-hmm. it's uh. You know, they've still got some some uh, work to do here, obviously, to catch the Dodgers. Well, the fact they're doing all this without Fernando Tatis Jr. speaks to the, yeah. the overall team that they do have, which would tend to be, or which I'm sure would be better if you do get him out there and get him to be 
you know, part of that club. I mean, you look at what the Braves were suffering through without Ronald Acuna Jr. They were not playing well over 500 baseball and are still not playing well over 500 baseball, even with him back. So not to sell the Padres short whatsoever of anything that they've done without the guy who's widely regarded as being not only one of their best players or their best player, but one of the best players in all of baseball when he's rolling. I looked at the Giants, too. They've kind of hit the skids lately. This lineup or, or this collection of hitters that they've got is a real quandary. The only guy in double-digit home runs, the only guy with more than four home runs for the Giants this year is Jock Peterson, who has 11 home runs. They have had not quite enough power, not enough run-scoring ability, and they've tried a whole bunch of different guys in different places, different pieces and different versions of this. They were without Evan Longoria for a long time. Mike Yastrzemski has looked pretty good. He was also out with injury for a little while. It has been quite a challenge, it seems like, to get these guys rolling to anything close to what they got in 2021 when they were one of, if not the best team in baseball for a considerable amount of that season before getting bounced out of the playoffs. Yeah, it's still surprising, though, that they're third overall in runs scored. I mean, if you take away Jock Peterson, who really, by the way, had a really crazy week when you think about the fact that he hit three home runs in one yeah. game. Against and had the, the Mets, no Against less. the Mets and then had that you know, the whole Tommy Pham thing take over his weekend. He would just have eight home runs. Um, you know, they've got, you know, four, 13 players who are hitting above league average right now. Um, again, you know, they're in the top three and run scored. Last year they were so predicated on some just ridiculous pitching. Um, it's, it's, I don't know, you know, how Kapler's able to get this production onto so many different guys, but this it's been the sum of the parts for them these last two years. It just played out differently a year ago, you know, when they end up winning 100 games, and right now they're seven games back of the, the Dodgers. So it's, it, it's the same formula. It's just not playing itself out uh, in 22. No, it doesn't seem to be. I mean, Carlos Rodon has been a pretty good addition for them, but you always felt like when pitchers signed with the Giants that they had a chance to find a different gear. Kevin Gosman's a, a guy that springs mm-hmm. to mind immediately, and obviously he cashed in to go pitch for the Toronto Blue Jays and make a whole bunch of money to do it. But you're not really seeing that this year. Rodon has been good. He's 4-4, four and four, his ERA just over 3.5. Uh, good amount of strikeouts, of course, 64 of those in 50 innings, but Alex Cobb has struggled. Alex Wood has struggled. Logan Webb has looked good. Um, Jacob Junis, who they picked up, I believe, from the Royals, has given them a few good starts as well. But, no, it doesn't seem to be quite the same well-oiled machine on the pitching side for the Giants this year. And, you know, you're right. When you look at all the different pieces that they've used, offensively speaking, they've cobbled together quite a lot, but they're having to overcome I think a lot because this just hasn't run the same way that it did last year for them. And according to their plan, I would say the blueprint that they have for having success out there by the Bay. Yeah. I mean, that, that's how they've gotten things done. Right. I mean, is, is Kapler is, is played by the numbers and played, you know, he's, he's obviously a guy who spends a lot of time dealing with the, the analytics and the sabermetrics mm-hmm. and, and playing the game that way. Um, you know, but certainly they've had success and, um, you know, I, I do want to mention, though, elsewhere in this division, can we talk about the Rockies City Connect uniforms for a second? Which, you know, I, I know that some people have taken some heat over what Nike's done with some of mm-hmm. these. These are just gorgeous, right? And we're going to see them during this uh, this Brave series. They, you know, tied them off of the Colorado plates before they had the Rockies in the background. They do kind of look like a like a beer league softball uniform, but, I mean, these are fantastic. They remind me a little bit of the turn-ahead-the-clock jerseys or uniforms that Major League Baseball tried oh, about nice 20 pull, years yeah. ago. Just a little bit of that. Not a ton, but we'll see how it all looks, and I'm still interested to see what kind of um, City Connect uniform that the Braves are going to end up getting at some point as well. So that pretty much does it here in the National League, as, of course, it's still the Mets on top in the East. It is the Brewers in the Central, the Dodgers out in the West. Those are your division leaders as of Memorial Day weekend, which is when all these standings start to mean just a little bit more. 
We'll sign up the American League next as From the Diamond continues right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. It's not just Grant McCauley. It's Grant McCauley. It's Corey McCartney. It's Tom Sorosky. We've got all kinds of people here on our roster making this thing happen. It is From the Diamond. It's Sports Radio 92.9, The Game from the Kia Studios. And as we continue our trip around the big leagues, which is an oldie but a goodie for me here, we're going to look over at what's happening in the American League, where nothing much has changed in the top two spots in this division. you got the Yankees up top. you got the Tampa Bay Rays trying to keep pace, trying to chase them down. You do have the Blue Jays starting to play a little bit better brand of baseball, and don't look now, so are the Red Sox. And as we expect this to be an ultra-competitive division, none of those things are really surprising in a vacuum. What we are seeing, though, is there are some cracks for the New York Yankees in terms of their overall roster. Uh, Josh Donaldson is now on the injured list. Giancarlo Stanton is now on the injured list. And several other Yankees are either down for short or short or long-term uh, periods of time now. And this is going to be something that's going to force New York to get creative with bringing in some pieces to see if they can get anything out of them. And, Corey, I think they've got a whole bunch of moves to get caught up on in the last seven or so days. So they've also had DJ LeMahieu and Aaron Hicks have missed time. Uh, you know, And then you look at the pitching standpoint, Rolos Chapman's out, Chad Green's out for the season, Jonathan Loiza has been injured. Uh, they brought in David McKay and former Brave Arm Manny Banuelos from the minors to try to uh, fix yes. this thing. But we, we're seeing the Yankees kind of dial it back to when we were uh, you know, in our formative years in terms of looking to see if a guy has anything left. They should sign Matt Carpenter you know, to a, a major league deal. He's already homered for the team. Then they bring in Shane Green, the former Braves reliever, uh, on a minor league deal. Um, he had one appearance with the Dodgers this year. They DFA'd him. He was granted free agency. Uh, obviously, we saw him be an all-star with the Tigers. He kind of had some shakiness, I think, would be the definitive term for him uh, in a Braves uniform. But it feels like the old Yankee way of trying to do business here where you bring in guys like Cecil Fielder and Daryl Strawberry and see if they have anything left. And meanwhile, in the same division, we're seeing another team do what we've seen them do many times before, which is the Rays. And getting a guy that you've never heard of and getting some ridiculous production out of him. Harold Ramirez, who they got in an under-the-radar uh, deal uh, back in March uh, with the Cubs. I mean, he's never hit above league average in three previous seasons. He's hitting 18% above league average right now. Has the highest expected batting average in the game. Uh, a 10-6 K rate that's in the top 10. It's just unreal how the Rays keep pulling this off. The ability to get something out of someone that you have no frame of reference for, um, they're doing it again with Harold Ramirez. Yeah, it's just what they do. They go out and they make various astute moves and smart trades, and it's almost like some clubs might want to say, hey, what do you want with this guy, and why do you want this guy, and why should I trade this guy to you (laughs) at this point? Because they have had this history of these very successful moves. They also go out and make, I think, very smart, very shrewd moves on the free agent market because they're not going to go out and really overspend you a whole lot. It was very curious when they were one of the clubs mentioned as having checked in on Freddie Freeman mm-hmm. during his free agency. But, you know, that obviously we know how that ended. But it was a curious move for the Rays because they're usually not talked about with the upper-level or top-tier free agents because it just doesn't seem like that's ever going to be a fit. But they're a club that finds a way to put all the pieces together and find its way into October more times than not, and they're trying very much to do that again as they will be uh, facing the Rangers in their next series. Meanwhile, we're going to get that showdown between the Angels and and the Yankees is going to be happening after, I believe, an off day on Monday for those two clubs. But we did talk about the Blue Jays a bit last year. They've won four in a row as they take on the Angels to close out the weekend on Sunday. This was something I'm sure the Blue Jays wanted to see was some pieces start to come together and some guys to start playing 
perhaps a little bit more to their norms. You talked about Bo Bichette last week. He's starting to show some signs of life at the plate. And, you know, winning 7 out of 10, that's a good way to climb back into the standings, and that's exactly what the Red Sox have done as well. So we don't usually talk about it being a two-team race in the East. It might become that down the stretch in September, but at some point it feels like we look and there's four teams that are either on a tear or three of them that are trading spots in this division and somebody that's maybe trying to just hold on as much as they can to that top spot. From a Blue Jays perspective, though, I, they sort of, I mean, they, they got to wonder what in the world do they have right now with Matt Chapman because it's been a real steady decline for him. At the height of, uh, you know, 2018, when he hit 39% above league average, the 139, we'd have run create a plus, that dipped to 125 a year later, then 116 in 2020. And, you know, this last year it was 101. He's dipped to, you know, 86 WRC plus this season. The slugging's gone from 508 to his height to 359 this year. The barrel rate's at its lowest it's been in years. He's just in a really bad way. And they've got him for another year at 12 million before he becomes a free agent. So the glove has always been, you know, deemed one of the league's best. Yeah. Um, again, just like we talked about earlier with him and Olsen, they both have uh, negative defensive metrics coming over from Oakland. But I don't know that they thought that the Matt Chapman they were going to get while well, he had some declines over the last few years was going to be this unproductive of a bad at this point in the year. Yeah, and it has been bad. And I would say this about you know, of the two of these, Matt Chapman or Matt Olson, which one's more surprising? Well, first baseman always seemed to kind of get, from a metric standpoint, a little bit more grief with the way that it all works out than most other positions do. But Chapman, I mean, he's a guy that I feel like is a, is a platinum glove mm-hmm. candidate and has shown himself to be one of the better fielding players in the American League for a while. But it's not really the glove as much, though it is – you know, if that's not working at the highest level, though, it starts to make you look twice at the overall package here. And when you're hitting sub 200 and you're about to open the month of June and you've driven in 20 runs and you're not missing a whole lot of time, you're not making an impact on offense. You better be making quite an impact on defense. And even at $12 million, I mean, there's not a lot there that is helping you win baseball games on a consistent basis if you just can't chip in something at the plate on a semi-consistent basis. And remember, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. moves positions for Matt Chapman, and now you're hearing the potential that Josh Bell may be in the mix for this team as well, you know, from a first base point. So what does that mean for, you know, consistent playing time for Chapman in the field? I think, you know, the, the fact that he's, he's underperforming on a team that has much higher aspirations than where they sit right now in the standings, um, it's it's I, I mean I think when you look at all the the moves that were made and you know, we talk about story and how he's rebounded and you know Chris Bryant and things just aren't you know he just cannot stay on the field for the Rockies but all the big names that changed teams this offseason Chapman to me is one of the most surprising that it's been this bad this early yeah they thought they were going to get a guy that would definitely be a fix over at third base I would say that Vlad moving from third base to first base probably not altogether shocking no matter who they went out and got because <laughs> yeah. it's probably better for him long term but Either way, I mean, he's a guy that has, you know, hit some homers this year, but he has not been the MVP candidate that he was a season ago. And so if they can get him on a hot streak and maybe get some of these other guys going, they'll start moving things in the right direction. As far as the rest of the division is concerned, you know, you do have the Boston Red Sox. We talked about Trevor Story already. He's been on a tear. Boston trying to climb back up to 500 or thereabouts and start to make a push in the East. Meanwhile, in the Central, Minnesota Twins, they just keep winning. Seven out of ten. They're ten games over 500. They're well ahead of the Chicago White Sox, who can't seem to find their way to 500, if they might, if they can knock off the Cubs on Sunday. But this has been what I thought would be the reversal of this. Maybe the Twins were going to have a good year. 
But I definitely thought the White Sox were, were set up to have a great year, and that just has not been the case. No, and I, I, this is kind of fascinating to me that you look at two teams within the same division, the Twins and the Guardians, and the way that they're dealing with kind of overcoming what's been a low offensive output across the league this year. I uh, found this fascinating that the Twins, they had the league's lowest first pitch strike percentage by nearly 2%. So what's happening is they're taking the first pitch, and it's led to 30 more plate appearances where their batters have a 1-0 count. And that's kind of helped them overcome some of those early injury issues, most notably Carlos Correa. They have the AL's third-best way to run create a plus, fifth-best OPS. Then you look at the Guardians and what they're doing, and they're trying to work their way into advantageous counts. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're being selective about it in a different way, but they're also implying constant pressure. They had the league's highest contact rate at over 80%, which is more than 2%. Uh, over any team. So you take two teams within the same division that are going about it different ways and trying to overcome what has been some bad offensive production across the league. But not only that, and unsurprisingly, the Twins aren't leading that division as far as runs scored is concerned. It's a big reason why they're leading the division overall. The Guardians are second most in that regard. Third most, though, might surprise you. The Kansas City Royals, they have outscored the Chicago White Sox this year. And I don't think anybody could have pointed to the Royals offense and said, oh, yeah, they'll definitely outscore the White Sox for uh, the first 45 to 50 games of the year. I wouldn't have told you they'd outscore him for the first four or five games of the year. <laughs> the White Sox got some disappointing news on Sunday, though, uh, because Timmy Anderson left a game with a groin strain, and yep. he has been the best shortstop in baseball this season. I know a lot of attention was paid to him over the last 10 days with everything right. with him and Josh Donaldson, but he, I mean, he has been just so good this year. Leads all shortstops in war, uh, WRC+, weighted on base average, and uh, maybe the most important impressive part of his season is after striking out 119 times last year, he had a 21.6% strikeout rate. Uh, He's striking out 11% of the time this season. Uh, The Indians' Jose Ramirez is the only player above two war who has a lower strikeout rate than Tim Anderson does right now. And so you think about him consistently missing time for a team that's already underperforming offensively. Uh, Sunday could be bad news for the White Sox. So you're telling me Jose Ramirez is a better guardian of the strike zone. There you go. Tim Anderson. It is quite a change, though, and Anderson has been an, a, a very aggressive hitter over the course of his career. If you make those little adjustments, though, year over year, he's a guy that you know has all the talent in the world, and he's one of the many players that they're building that club around, including uh, Luis Robert, Eloy Jimenez, who they've been without for quite some time. That has not helped out their run-scoring effort either. Meanwhile, out in the West, it has been the Houston Astros for a little while now who have taken over the top spot there as the Angels have fallen a little bit back down to earth. Neither of these two teams had a big week. Astros have lost a couple games in a row as they wrap up a series against the Mariners. That's a little bit surprising. It would probably help the Astros' cause if they were to beat a struggling club like Seattle. Uh, Meanwhile, the Angels have lost four in a row and seven out of ten and have slid two and a half games back pending the results of Sunday. Corey, though, I'm still looking forward to the Angels and the Yankees having this little showdown, and it's kind of fun to see that Mike Trout and Aaron Judge are going to be going head-to-head in that one because – those are two guys that I feel like are must-see TV when you start talking about players across Major League Baseball. Oh, without question. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be a ton of fun, and you know, some Groundhog Day vibes for the Angels though, because Anthony Rendon was placed on the injured list with inflammation in his right wrist. Um, said he first felt it swinging at a pitch in a game, underwent an MRI, no structural damage, but um, he had five homers, a 738 OPS, was solid during the pandemic, shortened 2020 when he was 
top 10 in AL MVP voting, but last year was limited to 58 games of the hamstring, groin, and knee issues. This may not sideline him for an extended period of time. At this point, it's just a 10-day IL stint. He's eligible to come back June 6th, but man, remember he signed a seven-year, $245 million deal before the 2020 season. Hasn't been that five to six war uh, player that that he was with the Nationals so far in an Angels uniform. So some disappointments there. And you you brought up the Astros in this league. I, I, I know that we've painted... A lot of attention to Justin Verlander in this insane comeback season that he's had with a 1-2-2 ERA. But Christian Javier is fanning 11.6 per nine. Um, since he's moved into the starting rotation, he's the first Astros pitcher to fan at least nine and walk one in three straight starts since Garrett Cole in 2019. So we saw him during the World Series against the Braves. We know that that stuff is pretty electric. A 2-4-3 ERA, the second best on that Houston staff behind Justin Verlander. Yeah, and that's one of the big reasons why they were able to go on that nice little winning streak. It helps to outscore your opponents, but when you get that kind of pitching, it puts you in a position to be able to do that because you're keeping runs off the board. I want to go back to Anthony Rendon for a moment because when you think about 2019, the Washington Nationals win the World Series. I thought they were crazy to let Rendon leave. They signed Strasburg to the big money deal. That has not really worked out from a health perspective for Washington. Meanwhile, since 2020, and again, this was a, a shortened season because of COVID that year, but he's played 151 games for the Angels, 20 homers, 88 runs knocked in, OPS sub 800, about a three, three and a half war player over that time. Keep in mind the free agent season and why he got that huge deal from the Angels. He had 44 doubles, 34 homers, 126 runs knocked in. Uh, slash 319, 412, 598 for a 1,000-plus OPS So and scored almost 120 runs. Oh, and by the way, they won the World Series that year. So Rendon, when he came in, it felt like they are finally getting some support from Mike Trout, but he has not been able to stay healthy and or effective in his time with Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, you hate it for that that team right there, too. I mean, they spent a lot of money on Albert Pujols, and then they watched that become, you know, over the years a, a bad contract, and they end up walking away from it. Um, lucky for them that they've had, you know, that they've had a Ward step up, that Shohei Otani has been able to come in there and been what he's been for this team. Uh, but certainly they have they have wanted something very different from uh, Anthony Rendon so far in this. And, and elsewhere in this division, I think the Mariners uh, might be the most disappointing team in the majors. It's they, up there. Yeah, they had a 7.8% chance right now to make the postseason. We've talked about the frustrations with this offense. Mitch Hanniger's hurt. Jesse Winker is hitting below average as a negative F4 player right now. But Robbie Ray... I did not. I mean, when you start diving in the numbers, his ERA is nearly two runs higher than it was a year ago. His K per nine is the lowest it's been since 2015. His velocity is down across the board. Ray and Winker, the two big additions for this team, have both absolutely underperformed. I was really high on this Mariners team all winter long. Uh, I've been. I, I just can't find a more disappointing team because the White Sox are still in second place. The Mariners are almost out of it, and we're talking about it not even being June. No, it is hard to fathom. And Jared Kelnick, you can throw him in there as yet another run of just disappointment for him. I feel like maybe they messed with his swing a little bit much once he got to the big league level and tried to make him more of a lift guy, more of a launch angle guy. I mean, it works for a lot of players, but it doesn't work for everybody. Sometimes when you got a swing that just works for a guy, you just leave it alone and let him do it his way. I know that's easy for me to say because I'm not a hitting coach, but <laughs> I, I know a lot of amateur hitting coaches that I hear from on Twitter on a regular basis, particularly when the Braves aren't scoring runs. We've all got our theories is what I'm saying, but Jared Kelnick was one of the top prospects in baseball, and Seattle has not done a great job of, I think, developing him and allowing him to get in a position to succeed. Half of it at least, or maybe more than half of it, is on the player to step in and do the thing, but it has not happened for Kelnick. And, yeah, Robbie Ray's – season thus far has not been one that you 
be overly excited about. He is leading the American League in innings pitch, which he did a year ago. But you mentioned his strikeout rate's down, his walk rate is up just a little bit, and maybe some of that, and, and also his home run rate uh, is about the same as it was a year ago. Hit rate up slightly. I don't know what it all means, but if you walk a few more batters and give up those home runs, more runs get on the board. It can be a little bit more difficult to find a way to win some games, and Seattle has found it to be very difficult thus far this year, as have the Oakland Athletics, who are in the cellar out in the American League West and have the third worst record in the American League. So overall, it's the Yankees at the top with the Tampa Bay Rays trying to chase them down. The Minnesota Twins still holding on in the AL Central and out West. It is the Astros with the edge over the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim of Orange County of California. That wraps things up in the American League report. When we come back, we'll take a look at what's ahead this week for the Braves as they hit the road. We'll do it next on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. around the league with more of our From the Diamond with Graham McCulley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond. Graham McCauley, Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. It is time to take a look ahead at what's going on for the Atlanta Braves in the week to come. As they're going to hit the road, they have a road trip that comes up with three games at Arizona. They've got four games at Colorado and these are a couple of clubs that are sub-500, which means, Corey, that this long string of, what is it, 29 consecutive games against sub-500 clubs continues. But what about two different kind of assignments for Braves pitchers here? We know Colorado can kind of be a house of horrors for any pitching staff to go into. It can also make a mess of your hitters for a while if they go in there and you know the results are a little bit different than they are in the other 29 Major League ballparks. But going from the desert to the rare air of Colorado, both places where the ball flies pretty well, this could be a challenge for the Braves pitchers. And two very different kinds of challenges, too, because you look at this Diamondbacks team. I mean, they've had success. A lot of it has been with the starting pitching. I mean, Zach Gallen, you know, has been really good at this point. You know, he's got a 2-2 ERA. Uh, Umberto Castellanos, who they're going to see, has been has it a little bit more elevated. But Merrill Kelly, you know, has been sub-4. Madison Bumgarner, you know, started off really well. He's cooled off of late. Uh, and then you look at what's happening, you know, with this Rockies team. Surprise, surprise, they're putting up big offensive numbers, and C.J. Crone just continues to rake. He's tied for the first base lead in homers, uh, you know, hitting 46% above league average. He's having one of the most underrated seasons in the game right now on a team that's really fighting for attention in a loaded division. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, certainly you know, the power profile has increased in Coors, but um, that's a guy that had a 30-home run season in Tampa, hit 25 in Minnesota. This is, you know, going back to that point, though, I mean, this is these are two different kinds of challenges. I think this Arizona pitching staff is going to be really interesting, and the Braves are going to have to see Gallon, Bumwarner, and Castellanos uh, in this series. And and uh, you know, Gallon to start it off. I mean, he's he's having a really good season that I don't know that enough people are talking about. Yeah, and this was one that comes after just uh, the injuries that were keeping him from being on the mound for the Arizona Diamondbacks for quite some time. And we talked about this trade that went on between Arizona and Florida that or Miami. Uh, of the state of Florida, in which Jazz Chisholm went from Arizona to the Marlins and in which Zach Gallen, who was, I guess, one of just many Marlins pitching prospects that they were either picking up in trades or drafting and trying to develop at that time, was sent out to Arizona. Seemed to be a win-win for both sides, and I would say right now, as you look at it, it certainly looks like a win for 
both of these teams. Jazz Chisholm has played at an all-star level for the Marlins, and Zach Gallen, as you mentioned, he's having low-key one of the better seasons that you'll find of any starting pitcher in either league. I'm sure both those teams would be okay if they still had the other side of the deal, sure. but you know, you look at it from the Diamondback standpoint, and it's really hard. I mean, they obviously they they went out and were able to get Madison uh, Bumgarner to want to come to Arizona, but it's really hard to get an, an ace-level pitcher to go and sign a free agent deal. Those are kind of the guys that don't let get let go of too often, and they're probably not going to what is a you know a bottom third market team uh, in terms of you know how much money they're willing to put into a, a, a payroll. So I think it made a lot of sense for them from the standpoint of what they've gotten from Gallon. You take away his last outing against the, Ro- the Ro- uh, Royals, excuse me, who kind of got to him a little bit. He had a one one four ERA before that outing, mm-hmm. and Chisholm, you know, continues to to be a real dynamic player, uh, you know, out in uh, in Miami, but. Uh, I think Gallon's going to be really interesting because he does have, you know, a real high uh, strikeout rate, and guys are hitting 146 against him on the season. So the Braves just had to deal with some high end pitching. Uh, you know, when you think about what they had to to see with the uh, Marlins and and Sandy Alcantara, who was just absolutely lights out and striking yeah, out. They'd be happy to guys. not see him again for a yeah, while. Yeah, I mean, they've they've kind of had this really sad distinction of there are 19 starters in the NL who have an ERA under three, and the Braves have faced 10 of them and seen three of them twice, and now they're going to have to deal with another one in Gallon. So they've they've continually had to face elite pitching this season. They're going to see it out in Arizona. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out that just because a team is underperforming or struggling does not mean that that day's starting pitcher is necessarily going to have all the struggles that match the overall dynamic of the team. Looking at these pitching matchups, we talked a lot about Zach Gallon, who has a, a pretty good, um, I guess, way of carving up a lineup and a way of missing bats and a way of picking up some strikeouts. So if you've got to deal with that on one side, you might as well counter with it on your side. This is the big opportunity for the Braves rotation to perhaps level up finally in that fifth spot as Spencer Strider will start against Gallon and the Diamondbacks on Monday. 222 ERA for Strider in his 11 games, 24 and a third innings, just 11 walks, 37 strikeouts. Again, in just over 24 innings, he was a starting pitcher in the minor leagues. I think he's a guy that could get you through the five innings, he's done it in the bullpen in multiple inning role, and perhaps we'll be able to have this opportunity to make a few of these starts and see if he can, in fact, be the answer the Braves are looking for at this point because it's gone on for quite a while that they've tried to find some consistency in that spot in rotation. It's one of the many things in which the Braves are searching for a consistent contributor to give them what they need. Strider had 21 games started out of his 22 appearances uh, during his real meteoric rise uh, through the minor league system last year. I think, you know, the main thing with him is just just give your offense enough of a cushion because if you can get to this Diamondbacks bullpen, they've been horrendous. They have been the worst bullpen in the National League to this point. They're tied with the Twins uh, for the last spot in the majors with minus two uh, Fangraph War right now. So you got to try to get get past those starting pitchers. And I think the thing for Strider is against an offense that, you know, has some pieces in it. I mean, Christian Walker has 12 home runs. They're, they're going to, you know, I, the Braves may be getting him the, the wrong time. He has a near 900 OPS uh, with six home runs in the last two weeks. But um, I think the thing for Strider is we've seen him pitch multiple times uh, in many of his appearances already. So, you know, just don't get too amped up. I mean, I think just just be somebody who can kind of give your offense enough of a cushion. But he's obviously someone who has handled high-leverage situations so many times at this point in the season. I just think it's a matter of how deep into a game he can get. Yeah, you look at Spencer Strider's numbers overall in 2021 when he was doing most of the starting 
He did throw over six innings twice. He threw over five innings, an additional, I believe, seven times, so nine total outings in which he was able to go five innings or more. As a starting pitcher, I think that five innings, you know, they call him, what, five and dive at this point. But I think you'd be happy with the quality of the five innings you could get from Spencer Strider, even if you're not trying to push that pitch count much beyond, I would say, what, 75 to 85 pitches. Could you imagine Spencer Strider throwing more than that? I think the first time out, they'd probably be pretty cognizant to not have that pitch count jump up 25 or 30 pitches beyond what he's done, right? Yeah, I think you're going to be you're going to be playing this with kid gloves with him, right? And I think, you know, at the same time you're watching, you know, his ability to locate that fastball because that's really going to be everything. Certainly the slider has been a huge weapon for him one that he's been you know, been developing, you know, over the past few years. I told you before that he had mentioned to me when he got to Double A that he realized that he wasn't just going to be able to throw his fastball past everybody and he needed to be able to to work a little bit more at, mm-hmm. at creating that secondary pitch to keep guys off the fastball. He's done that. He was throwing the slider 24% of the time uh, in his, you know, 380 pitches uh, to this point. So, uh, I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see how he handles this in, in terms of, you know, how, how selective are you with that secondary stuff? I mean, he's thrown a changeup a few times, just mm-hmm. less than 10 to this point. Uh, I would be wouldn't be surprised to see him mixing that in a little bit more as he faces a an offense that hasn't seen him and you know the book on him at this point is he throws the ball really really hard so I think that's going to be uh, it, it's going to be fascinating to watch how this uh, Arizona offense attacks him but at the same time how he goes against a, an opponent that really doesn't have a book on him yeah there's really not a big book on him thus far although when you get to the big leagues that book is a lot bigger than the one that minor league teams were dealing with when it came to scouting him it was more or less like all right well what does this guy have and When's the last time we saw him, and how well is he throwing it? Maybe you have some advanced scouting that you know most clubs are going to share and work through. But uh, going back to this pitch count thing, I just kind of thought it was worth not you know stressing over, but certainly worth looking at as a pitcher. As, excuse me, as a starting pitcher last year, Spencer Strider typically threw about eighty to eighty-five pitches. He was up over ninety pitches just twice last year. Again, I don't expect that to be first time out of the gates. Maybe that's something that he builds up to. But at seventy-one is his high watermark for pitch count this year. He's also thrown 69 and 61 in two other appearances, two of those coming in April, one of them coming on May the 6th. That was when he struck out the eight batters across four scoreless innings against the Milwaukee Brewers. And I think at that point, that was the outing where everybody pretty much looked at this and said, all right, if this guy can do this kind of thing over a four-inning burst, why are we not starting this guy? Because we're three weeks later, and finally three, almost four weeks later, it's time for Spencer Strider to get an opportunity that some people feel is at least three to four weeks overdue. And I'm interested to see how he handles this. I mean, obviously the stuff is absolutely electric. I just, you know, I go back to this. I really liked him in that in that role in the bullpen, especially with Tyler Matzik uh, unavailable right now. I thought if this was going to happen, it was going to happen when Matzik was back in the fold more so than yeah. you were just going to, you know, decide to do it on this road trip. Uh, but, you know, again, it's, uh, you know, we, we've seen him handle every situation so far so well, and he just has such an even keel mentality about him that, I mean, the stuff is real. It's 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 you know it's causing batters a lot of fits, and I'm really intrigued to see how he's going to handle it against this offense. Yeah, so he's been scored upon in three of his 11 outings this year. Three of those runs coming in uh, a game against the Miami Marlins, in which he did not record an out. I don't know if you remember that particular outing. It seemed to be just a maybe a strange time to use him. I could be wrong about that, but. You know, there's all kinds of questions that we've had about what is the right time to use Spencer Strider. Is he a guy that comes in for one inning and blows away three batters? Is he a guy that you try to plan away for him to get five or six outs for you every time he comes into the game? 
and be able to bridge the gap from maybe a starting pitcher that didn't get as far along as you want him to get. There's just been a lot of things that it's kind of, I'm sure for Brian Snitker and I'm sure from the Braves as they overall you know, look at this as an organization and how they want to deploy all of their pitchers to get the most out of them, Ben, well, he really could excel in a number of different roles. So that almost is kind of a blessing and a curse. But you kind of have to pick a lane, I guess, is what I'm getting to in a roundabout sort of way. He has not allowed a home run in his 24 and a third inning to this point. The Diamondbacks have hit the fifth most home runs in the majors. So I feel like something's going something's gonna to break here. Somebody this might run into a fastball, but if they do, they're going to have to get started early because Spencer Strider does throw hard. He throws consistent. He throws strikes. Uh, not a lot of walks for him. He did walk three uh, three batters way back in an April appearance against the San Diego Padres and again in an April appearance prior to that against the Washington Nationals. But if you're just to go back and look at you know what he has done as far as walks are concerned, uh, most recently, since the start of May anyway, um, he has thrown 11 and two-thirds innings. He walked two batters. They both came in his last outing. But by the way, he gave up no hits and struck out five over two and two-thirds. So he is going to walk some guys now and again. But 21 punch-outs, two walks, nine hits in his last 11 and two-thirds innings, that, my friend, will play. And it will play in a variety of roles. And if he's able to give the Braves a little bit of length there and let them piece it together with a bullpen from, say, the fifth, sixth inning on, that could be something that could work for Atlanta because they're not getting much more out of the fifth spot, are they? No, they're not. And you know, I, we're not really talking at all either about uh, you know the fact that they're going to see Madison Bumgarner again. And uh, I think we can remember the last time that the Braves saw Madison Bumgarner, he was throwing a seven-inning no-hitter they that he didn't actually no get credit yes. for. So, yes. yeah, I mean, I, I think this sets itself up for some interesting battles. And you've, got, you've again, got Zach Gallen uh, going against Strider in this opener on Monday night. And um, you know, how, how is Strider going to handle this? Because is this going to be just an intermittent thing? Uh, that, or do you use him in more of a piggyback role when Mike Soroka does come back? Those are obviously questions mm-hmm. for further down the line. But that fifth spot and trying to find consistency for a spot where they've had an over 90 RA from these guys that have been would-be starters. Uh, we'll see what uh, he's able to bring to the table. Yeah, so as you look at the starting pitchers as they're lined up right now for the Braves and Diamondbacks beginning on Monday evening, it's an 8-10 p.m. First pitch time, Eastern time anyway. It'll be Spencer Strider against Zach Gallen. Then you go to Tuesday's game, 9.40 p.m. Eastern time. Charlie Morton will be facing Umberto Castellanos. And then you've got Kyle Wright against Madison Bumgarner in the finale and afternoon affair at 3.40 Eastern time on Wednesday as that will be the wrap-up for that. But then a four-game series looming with the Colorado Rockies after that. And you know that would mean, I guess, as, as you're looking at this, that Spencer Strider would also get a start in Coors Field, which is all kinds of a fascinating um, story in and of itself for a guy that throws hard against a team that is every single year, no matter who it is, the names change, but the numbers are typically the same, going to put up some offensive numbers in their home ballpark. That would be an interesting challenge for Spencer. It sure would. I mean, when that Rockies offense, you know, they, that's how they get it done, right? I mean, the, the starting pitching has not been there, but I, again, I go back to C.J. Crone, and I think, you know, you're, I, I think for a lot of Braves country that have not watched him you know, being able to, to, as good as he's been this year, I think this could be a, a, an opportunity to see a guy, you know, this past few seasons, the only first baseman to hit more home runs than him are Vlad Guerrero, Vlad Guerrero Jr., Pete Alonzo, uh, Matt Olson, and Paul Goldschmidt. So Crone uh, having an absolutely ridiculous year. So it's going to be a chance to see him up close. You know, he's taken somewhat of a circuitous route to get out to Colorado, which, again, is a great place to hit. So that's a pretty obvious statement that you can talk about. But, um, this was one of the guys that was out in Los Angeles and could have been at least a little bit of a help power-wise to Mr. Mike Trout, but they're going to need a lot more than C.J. Crone to try to get themselves to the place where they are this year. They've gone out and done it with Shohei Otani and uh, others that have made, and Taylor Ward, by the way, who've made That's a pretty right. big difference. But C.J. Crone, another former angel, another one of those little pieces that 
the Rockies managed to find from other different clubs and bring him in there, and they could have a career renaissance in Coors Field. He's just the latest and perhaps the greatest in that regard. But that will bring us to the close here of this episode of From the Diamond. We've had a lot of fun chatting about the Braves and all of Major League Baseball with you, and we get set for the road trip as the Braves will begin it in Arizona on Monday night against the Diamondbacks to open up that three-game series. For Corey McCartney, I'm Grant McCauley. Also, for our producer, Dom Shirosky, this has been From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We'll catch you next Sunday. So long, everyone.